You can turn to John 5 this morning. John 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. And uh, this is a unique story. And I think that anytime you come across something that, uh, especially in Scripture, that, that, that stands outside of maybe the norm, uh, there's always a reason for it. There's always something uh, that God wants us to learn about our lives, learn about him, learn about our relationship with him. And in John 5, there's a couple interesting kind of uh, what I would call outlier moments uh, in this, these, these short 13 verses. And I believe this morning, I believe that if we will let the Holy Spirit take his word and pierce our hearts with it, I believe that we will leave here different than the way that we came in. Uh, and we are, we're in the middle of this uh, vision series. We're in the middle of a series where we are concentrating and focusing and viewing each week uh, as a foundational week for the next 10 years of ministry and the next 10 years of operating as a part of the church of Jesus Christ in this world. And I believe that today's message might be one of the most important messages in this series when it comes to our lives with Christ, our families, our marriages, the church as a whole, uh, and, and living for Jesus and encountering Christ. And I, I would beg of you, whether this is your first time here, uh, whether you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus, you're in this room, you're at house church, you're here in this moment, and I believe that God ordained this very moment for you to hear this message, and I believe that for many of us, this might change your life, this might even lead to your salvation, this might lead to you being set free from some things you've dealt with your whole life, uh, but ultimately, I believe that the Lord will use this message to create a hunger in you like you never had before for the person of Jesus Christ. And that's my hope and that's my belief. And so I want us to look at this this morning in John 5, 1 through 3. Uh, this is a, a, a cool story. If you grew up in church, I'm sure that you've, you've heard of this. This is uh, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to enjoy a feast uh, with the rest of, of the Jews, and he encounters uh, this, this man. This invalid. And I'm going to read this. Sometime, this is John 5, verse 1. Sometime later, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool with five covered colonnades, which in Hebrew is called Bethsaida. On these walkways lay a great number of the sick, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One man there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he had spent such a long time in this condition, he asked him, do you want to get well? In the Greek, it literally just says, do you want to be made whole? So I, I think one of the, the very first things for us to really come to terms uh, with this story, to really come to terms with these scriptures, is to first truly understand what's happening and then how that parallels distinctly and powerfully with our own lives uh, with Jesus. Uh, this is a very unique pool. This is not just uh, your neighbor's pool that you try to sneak into in the summer when they're on vacation, okay? Everybody's laughing's done that. Can I get an Amen. Everybody, no one laughs at that joke unless you've been a part of that situation. 
This pool, uh, this pool near Bethsaida, uh, called Bethsaida, near the Sheep Gate, uh, was actually a pool that had a reputation uh, for bringing healing to people uh, who were sick. Uh, there is, in, in some of the manuscripts, uh, the, the later manuscripts, there's that, in verse four, it actually says that an angel comes down and at times stirs the water, and when the water is stirred, whoever the first person is to get in the pool gets healed. The reason why most of the modern uh, translations, the ESV, BSB, some of these, they take verse four out is because in all of the older manuscripts, this verse isn't there. It's not there. And so uh, usually when the majority of the older trans, uh, the older translations, the older original manuscripts don't have a verse, it's probably one that was added later. That's why they've, they've removed it. But the heart of the idea, and it doesn't really matter whether that's the case or that's not the case, the heart of the idea is that people believe that this pool at certain times, it had a reputation for offering healing. That's why there were so many lame and blind and paralyzed people. There were uh, not just dozens, there were probably hundreds uh, of people, sick people, people who had infirmities, people who were invalids, people who were paralyzed, people who were blind, people who were sick, people who were in need of a healing, hanging out there on a regular basis in hopes uh, that the stories about this pool were true in hopes that that water would stir at some point, someone would get in and get healed. Uh, that's why there are dozens to hundreds of people hanging out near this pool. And so Jesus is showing up. That's the Sabbath day. Jesus is on his way to the temple. Uh, we find out uh, that distinctly here in just a little bit uh, because he winds up in the temple uh, later. He's on his way to the temple and then he sees this man. Now, what I think we, we've really got to come to terms with and what I think really kind of blows up the scripture, blows up the verse, really uh, brings us into the point that Jesus is really wanting us to see is the reason why out of all of the people there, out of all of the paralyzed people, out of all of the blind people, out of all of the sick people, out of everybody there struggling with different weaknesses and different sicknesses, there were uh, at, at probably hundreds of people piled around this pool, laid throughout the colonnades, laid throughout all the pathways. Why out of all of these people and Jesus is on his way to the temple, does he stop in the middle of this and target this one man and engage him and interact with him and encounter him and touch him and ultimately make him whole? The why Jesus stops is important because I think that this will speak volumes uh, to the direction that Jesus wants us to go and to the thing that Jesus wants us to learn about. What the Bible says uh, in verse uh, six is that, that the invalid had been there for 38 years and when Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he had spent such a long time in this condition, he then stopped his journey to the uh, temple, he stopped what he was doing and he engaged this man and he asked him a question. Do you wanna be made well? Do you wanna be made whole? It was the fact that this man had been dealing with this condition for 38 years that got Jesus's attention. And to even go a little bit deeper to understand how much in common, especially on a spiritual level that we have with this man, we've got to really understand uh, this word invalid that's translated invalid. We got to really understand what that really is. Because if you think this guy's paralyzed, he's not. 
Because Jesus heals paralyzed people all throughout scripture. And when he heals a paralyzed person, he calls them paralyzed. They use the word paralyzed. They use the word paralyzed just before the scripture to describe other people that were there, blind people, sick people, and invalids. Uh, this word invalid, it, 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 it's most of the time it's translated infirmity, but it, the original word is esthenia. And what esthenia means is any kind of weakness or sickness that limits or makes it impossible for you to live your life normally or as you should. That's what an esthenia is. That's what an infirmity is. That's what is translated invalid here. That means that for 38 years uh, that this man had some type of weakness or sickness that prevented him from living life like everyone else. It, it, it might have been a sickness, it might have just been a weakness of the bones. It, it, it might have been anything. And I think that's the beauty of this story. I think that's the beauty of why Jesus picked this man is because he wasn't just paralyzed. He wasn't just blind. He didn't just have, he had some type of physical weakness. He had some type of physical sickness in the depths of his body uh, that prevented him or made it even impossible for him to live his life as normal people would go about living their lives. And so obviously the spiritual parallel there, that is something every single person in this room, every single person watching at home with your family, every single person a part of a house church this morning, this is something that we absolutely 100% can relate with even if sitting here right now you don't realize that. Because this man had a physical weakness or a physical sickness uh, that prevented him from living life normally. And you and me, we have spiritual weaknesses and spiritual sicknesses that prevent us from living the life that Jesus Christ died to give us. John 10 teaches us that Jesus did not come just to give us life, but to give us life to the fullest, to give us an abundant life, a thriving life, an eternal life. That Jesus Christ died not just so that we would live a mediocre spiritual life. He didn't just die for us to be forgiven for our sins. He died for us to be set free from our sins. But sitting here today and sitting at home today, every single one of us we have within the depths of our soul and in the depths of our heart and the depths of our mind, spiritual weaknesses and even soul sicknesses that limit us or make it impossible for us to experience or live that thriving, abundant life that we are called to live. That is the truth. And the reason I know that that's the truth is because ain't none of us walking around changing the world. Ain't none of us walking around making history. Ain't none of us walking around living our lives to the extreme like people who are set free. This is the reality that we have to set in with just for a second. It gets really good, but just for a second, let's just be honest with ourselves. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Why do you think Jesus asked this man, do you wanna be made whole? Why do you think Jesus asked him that? Was it to be judgmental? Because I've heard some preachers come up and, 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 and be judgmental about it. That Jesus was like, hey, you've been sick for 38 years and you're sitting near this pool and why, you must not really want to get sick because you haven't done all the things that you can do and, and you haven't, you know, you haven't, you haven't uh, got down to the pool. And I even heard a man say, if, if that was me, I would have got down and I would have laid next to that pool and, and I would have kept one hand on it. And as soon as that water stirred, I would have done it because I would have had all the power, had the energy and I would have had the plans and I would have been able to do it. The, that's one, not the gospel in any sense of the word. And I don't think that Jesus is coming in here judging uh, this man uh, for not being able to get to the water or have a plan or, or be, be uh, strategic enough or smart enough or strong enough or powerful enough to get into the pool. That's not Jesus's heart here in this moment. I think that Jesus wanted to genuinely know, do you want to be made whole? 
You've been sick for 38 years, dealing with this for 38 years. Is it so much a part of your life that you're comfortable with it and you wanna just keep moving on with it in your life? This is a big question that every single one of us has to answer about the spiritual weaknesses and the spiritual soul sicknesses that we deal with. Ultimately, uh, the thing that we can all agree with, because some of you sitting here, I can hear it, I can hear your thoughts. Sometimes I can read minds. Some, some of you are sitting there and, and you're not quite with me and you're thinking, well, I don't really, my soul doesn't really feel that sick and, and what are you talking about? And, and, and I, don't, I feel like I'm doing just fine and I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm living the abundant life and, 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 and I kind of take a little bit of offense, especially the first time guests that just walked in and they have no idea and there's just this young little punk up on <laughs> screaming at me about you're not living your life right. So I, I just wanna calm you down for a minute and I'm gonna say something, I'm gonna get us all on the same page first before we hit the stuff that you, I'm talking about but you don't want me to talk about in just a minute. Can I do that? What I think we can all agree on is that the ultimate soul sickness and the ultimate spiritual sickness that limits us and makes it impossible for us to live the abundant life prior to knowing Christ is sin in itself, big S, sin. Sin in the flesh, uh, sin uh, in the depths of our souls, that rebellion in our hearts, that hostility in our minds towards God, that propensity to just break the commands and the laws of God, uh, that the depth of sin in, in all of us when we come out of the womb this way, that sin uh, prevents us from knowing the Father, knowing the Creator, from, from, from being connected to Him and having a relationship with Him. Sin is the thing that prevents us from having any real sense of purpose in this life with the Father. Sin is the thing uh, that, that comes in and creates havoc uh, in us and through us creates havoc in others. Uh, that, that sin is the thing that, that has to be dealt with. This is ultimately why Jesus Christ came from heaven to the earth uh, was to be the ultimate sacrifice to pay the price for sin in you and me, uh, that, that Jesus uh, hung up on that cross, was pierced for our transgressions, uh, that, that the Father took joy uh, to crush Jesus so that the big S sin problem would be taken care of in this world and in this life and in us. And all that he asked of us is that he, we would believe this, that we believe that the Father loves us so much that he would send his only begotten son to die for our sins, that Jesus took the wrath of the Father and Jesus took care of sin on the cross and that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are forgiven for that sin and sin itself is no longer uh, the problem that limits us from knowing the Father and that when we put our faith in Jesus, at the moment we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved, we're filled with the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God, Romans says, testifies with our spirit uh, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we've been brought into the family of God and our salvation is insecure in the work of Jesus Christ guaranteed by the spirit of Christ that is inside of us, that that big S sin problem was that first and greatest spiritual uh, sickness and spiritual weakness that makes it impossible for us to know the Father and to live life as we were created to live, but that Jesus Christ took care of that on the cross. We can, we can all agree to that, I hope and think. But the reality of it is, as so much of the Bible teaches, is that sin still exists in our flesh. Paul said uh, in, in Romans 7, he says, I, 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 know, I know the things that I need to do, but I don't do them. And I know the things I don't need to do, but I do them because when I, I see the world, I see something else at work in me. I see sin. Is sin is still a part of my flesh, that sin is still there. 
And all of us, I think that we can come to an agreement if we have just an ounce of humility, we know that sin still exists as a struggle in our life. Can I get a humble amen? amen. The thing I think that, that we also don't realize uh, about sin is that sin brings great significant damage to our lives, to our hearts, to our souls, and to our minds. And that, that though Christ saves us and we are forgiven of our sins, that the damage of that sin in our heart and in our minds needs to be healed. That there are things that the sins in our hearts, sins of the heart, sins in our mind, and the damage of sin in our souls and our hearts and in our minds that limit us. That's this, these infirmities, these spiritual infirmities. Things uh, that, that if I just started going down the line in which I just might do it here in just a second, that we would all start to, you know, let's just do that. Let's just hit, let's just hit some of us right there in the things. We'll start easy, something we're gonna, the insecurities. Insecurities is not something that the Father wants you to deal with. That insecurities uh, is, is, a, is a damage, it's a, it's a symptom of sin in your life and the damage uh, that sin has caused in your life. Insecurities, and, and when I say that insecurities can hold you back, what I mean is insecurities, deep insecurities, uh, they cause you to lie and to deceive and to exaggerate because you are not uh, happy with yourself, that sin has convinced you that, that though God created you and designed you perfectly who you are and that, 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 that he's got great and powerful plans for your life and he designed you as Terry taught us last week, to do good works, works that he planned ahead of time, that insecurities uh, because of the damage of sin in your life cause you to hate yourself, cause you not to like yourself, cause you to have to lie and to exaggerate, to try to find worth in this world. Insecurities cause you to hide from this world, to hide from people. You go through life no one, not ever letting anybody really know who you are because you think if they get in and they really see who I am, they're not gonna like me, they're not gonna wanna be around me, so you keep everybody at arm's length. Insecurities stop you uh, from chasing the calling that God has on you because you don't think you're worth it. You don't think you're good enough. You don't think you have what it takes. Insecurity, as common as it is, is a spiritual infirmity, is a spiritual weakness. It is a spiritual sickness that prevents you and sometimes uh, makes it impossible for you to live the life that Christ died to give you. That one didn't hit. Okay, let's go with, let's go with pride. Let's go with pride. This one will hit. No one will say amen. No one will raise their hands. No one will stand up because pride will cause you to not believe me. Pride will cause you to look at the person next to you and be like, are you listening, you arrogant? <laughs> pride creates things in our lives and puffs us up like, like selfish ambition. The Bible says that when selfish ambition, uh, the root of that is pride begins to take part in our life, that selfish ambition will cause you uh, to have significant dysfunction and disorder in your life, that nothing will be off the table for you to get the things that you want, that you'll hurt people around you, that you'll, you'll, you'll manipulate the people around you, that, that, that you'll, you'll create enemies in and around your workplace and in your family uh, because you feel like with this selfish ambition that's driving you to get all the attention uh, that you so admirably deserve, uh, uh, to try to get that position that you need at work, uh, to try to uh, keep, keep the people in your lives, keep control over them, and that you just lie and you cheat and you manipulate and you hurt uh, and you, you just leave a trail of damage in, in and around your life uh, because you're trying to take control over the people and striving to achieve the things that, that you want. Selfish ambition is the thing that causes you to sacrifice the most important things in your life on the altar of success. Did that hit anybody? 
Greed, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, greed. Greed is this thing that will cause you to just commit the sole focus of your life to getting more, more of whatever it is that you think will bring you happiness and joy. But as Jesus taught us a couple weeks ago, uh, that before you ever find joy and peace with greed, death will find you first. What about anger? The anger, anger that sits just beneath the surface, that, that at any given second, that could reach out and hurt the people closest to you. That at any, any given second, uh, you know, ang- anger will make you stupid. Anger will make you foolish. I just had a conversation uh, with my baby girl, Aubrey. She is, she is beautiful. She is smart. She is brilliant. She is amazing. And she's got a mouth on her. And I was in the closet with her the other day, and she got angry because something fell into the ground, and she just was not making any sense. And I said, anger makes you stupid. And she says, I'm not stupid. Don't call me stupid. I said, I didn't say you were stupid. I said, but you're acting stupid because anger makes you stupid. Right now, you can't even figure out how to take a broom and sweep up the Cheez-Its that you dropped because you're so mad. And you're like, oh, she's seven. <laughs> you're 37. <laughs> and you do the same exact thing. about the addictions in our life? What about those of us that, that, that can't make it through the day without a little bit of alcohol, just, just to get through? The pills that get, just give us the ability to get up every day and keep going. The pornography that is absolutely and utterly rewiring your brain and destroying your brain. And if it hasn't already, it will make it impossible for you to have any real intimacy in your current marriage or any future marriage that you have. What about the sexual sin uh, that we experience, most of us so young, that rips at our soul over and over and over again until we have the inability to connect with anybody on any real soul level? that creates trust issues in us uh, that, that sabotage every relationship or every friendship even that we've ever had? What about just the fact that deceitfulness has such a hold on some of us in, in our culture, the deceitfulness that, 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 that we just use deceitfulness as a constant habit in our life to make it through and cut corners in life and to deal with people so that we never have to deal with reality? What about those of us who laziness has such a hold on our souls and such a hold on our minds uh, that that we choose comfort over the betterment of our families, that we choose comfort uh, over the cause of Christ, that we choose comfort over financial stability, that we choose comfort, the laziness in us that we would rather suffer and the people around us suffer rather than us get out and get the job done. And I could stand up here all day long and the list would go on and on and on and on until I hit every single person in this room if I haven't already. We have within us spiritual infirmities. We have within us spiritual weaknesses and spiritual sicknesses of the soul that the root of it all is sin or the damage that sin has done to us. And, and, and like this man, so many of us, uh, uh, it's not just weeks it stays and months it stays, but years and years and years it stays and half a lifetime. And so when Jesus shows up in this man's life, the same way that he's showing up in your life right here and right now, and he's asking you the question, do you want to be made well? 
He's not judging you. He's asking you a genuine question. Is that issue, is that weakness, is that thing such a part of your life and such a comfort zone for you? Do you really want to be made well of that? Do you really want that bitterness that's in the depth of your soul that takes your joy from every ounce of your life? Are you really ready for that to be taken away from you? It seems almost like a pointless question. If it's not judgmental, then what's the point? Of course the guy wants to be healed. Of course the guy wants to be more. He's near the pool, isn't he? What's the point of Jesus asking this question? Because I think Jesus wanted to hear the answer. And this is what the answer uh, was. In verse seven, John 5, 7, Sir, uh, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm on my way, someone else goes in before me. Then Jesus, without saying anything else, without having any other discussion, all he says to the man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Immediately, the man was made well, and he picked up his mat, and he began to walk. This is ultimately what I believe Jesus wanted to hear from this man. Yeah, I wanna be made well, but I have nothing in my life. I have no ability to make myself well. I cannot get down, and there's nothing in this world that can help me. I've tried. I've tried 38 years. You don't think for 38 years this man has tried everything in his power? You just think he laid there for 38 years like a bump on a log? 38 years, I'm sure he's tried everything there is to try. 38 years, I'm sure he's thought of everything there was to think of. 38 years, I'm sure he gave it his best shot. But just like this thing that he dealt with, our spiritual issues, our spiritual weaknesses, our soul sicknesses, there is nothing in this world. There is no program. There is no counselor. There is no psychiatry. There is no pill. There is no drink. There is nothing in this world that will be able to set you free from sin and heal the damages of sin except the person of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, a touch from Jesus Christ, the presence of Jesus Christ, an interaction with Jesus Christ, an encounter with Jesus Christ. It's the touch of Jesus that makes us whole. It's the touch of Jesus that sets us free. Now, let me speak to the elephant in the room, and if you haven't got there yet, you will. You're sitting here thinking right here, well, just like the man was near the pool, I'm sitting in the church. I'm here, ain't I? Let's go, Southerners, ain't I? (laughs) I come to church. I go to house church every week. I watch Christian YouTube. I thumb through the Bible. I pray. I'm doing my thing, but I'm still addicted and I'm still insecure, and I still got control issues, and I still got anger issues, and I'm not made whole, so what's the deal? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because if you didn't ask, then the sermon would be hard to keep going, but you asked, so thank you. I want to read the other thing. Remember what I said? I said there's, there's a few outliers in this story. One, Jesus hardly ever asks somebody if they want to be well. Most people come to Jesus out of desperation. So Jesus doesn't have to ask. But this man didn't know who Jesus was. In fact, I wanna read to you exactly how much 
He did not know who this man was. Now this happened on the Sabbath day, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, it's unlawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered, the man who, uh, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you to pick it up and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had slipped away while the crowd was there. The NIV says the man had no idea who made him whole. He had no idea, yet one touch from Jesus, one interaction with Jesus, one encounter with the person of Jesus Christ made him whole. See, I, 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 think, I think that there are many of us, there's many Christian leaders, many pastors, many theologians, many church attenders, even many believers even many churches as a whole who don't understand the difference between the idea of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of churches and a lot of theologians and a lot of seminary professors and there's a lot of people there obsessed with the idea of Jesus, but they do not know the person of Jesus. And when you're obsessed with the idea of Jesus and you don't really know the person of Jesus, then you tend to perceive the, the few ways that God has given us to truly interact with the person of Jesus. You view them differently. I think we do this with the Bible. I, I, and I, I, wanna, I wanna share with you something. Uh, I, think that, I think that there are some of us, we're so obsessed from a religious standpoint with the idea of Jesus that this overtakes the way that we read and perceive even the Bible and our relationship with the Bible at times. There's some days I make this, this what I'm about to tell you really easy to know. I love to eat and I love to eat out. I do. This is something that, that I, 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 think, I think it's some of the happiest moments. There's a proverb I live by, eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> Based my entire life around it. I love going out to eat. My favorite restaurant right now, and it has been for a long time, is Epic Chop House up in Mooresville. It's so good. I love Epic Chop House. I love the steaks there. I love, I, I love the menu. The menu's fun to read. It describes all the food. I like, I like to be in the moment. I actually enjoy the process of sitting down. We've got a best friend uh, that I won't embarrass her, so I won't say Lauren's name, but <laughs> she, she starts reading the menu like that morning and afternoon, even though we've been to the restaurant a hundred times, she, she'll read it all throughout the day. She'll arrive there in the moment and not need a menu because she knows what she's gonna get. That's how she lives her entire life. I don't like that. I like getting there and like and and, and taking in and, and reading the menu. This is the thing about the menu, though. If you if you sit and you read the menu and you you memorize the menu and you you learn the menu throughout uh, the time you're, you're reading it, you, you you figure out how it's like. You even ask the waiter. You know, I'm reading this this uh, Hawaiian ribeye right here. Uh, that's that epic. I've memorized the menu, uh, and and it says this. These are the ingredients. How do they cook? How do they do that? Do they sear it first and then they walk? Through? Even if you had, you had all the information about it, if if at the end of your experience, if that menu did not result in a steak sitting at your table, you're not using the menu right. 
If, 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 you, if you were to read the menu, study the menu, get all the knowledge about the menu, be able to recite the menu, be able to have uh, philosophical conversations about the menu, uh, if, if at the end of, of that time that you had with the menu did not result in you not being able to walk because you're so filled up with a 72-ounce uh, tomahawk ribeye that Epic offers, then you're not using the menu right. The menu, when used correctly, is supposed uh, to create uh, and result in you being in the presence of food. And ultimately, that food, you then consume it and you are satisfied by that food. I think that in, in many ways, if you memorize uh, the, the menu and you read the menu, uh, but it does not result in a steak, then what you're doing is you're becoming obsessed with the idea of the steak, uh, but you don't actually ever experience the steak. If you don't know where I'm going yet, uh, this is what we do with the Bible all the time. The Bible was not, it's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible, despite seminary professors' hardest plea. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Bible was not written. God did not spend thousands of years miraculously writing and protecting and putting together this inerrant word of God for you to fall in love with the scripture but never know the author who wrote it. That, that, that I need to remind you that Satan knows the Bible far more than anybody in this room or house church ever will. That, that the Bible's sole primary purpose is to introduce you to the person of Jesus Christ, to drive you into the presence of Jesus Christ, to put you at the feet of Jesus Christ, the person, not the idea. There are thousands, if not millions, if not billions of people who are obsessed with the idea of Jesus and participate in religious activities under the name of Jesus and attend buildings uh, uh, with steeples on top and crosses representing Jesus that never come to know or fall in love with the person of Jesus Christ. We do the same thing with prayer. The other day I took my son to his first basketball game. An amazing member of our church hooked me up with front row tickets. It was a preseason game, and we got to sit right there, right next to the team, and he was just enthralled. Everything about it he loved, and, and he was just, he was nervous, and it made him just sit in silence, and, and, and oh, which is, is a miracle, because he, he's never silent. <laughs> but he asked an interesting question when they started to sing the national anthem. And, and he, he, he was confused as to how the music had anything to do with the game. And I, started, and I explained to him, uh, uh, I said, listen, the national anthem, because he, he didn't understand why he had to stand up, why I took my hat off, why I, I put my hand on my, on my chest, why I said, listen, the national anthem is something where we get together uh, as Americans and we honor the history of our country. We honor the, mainly the freedom that we have in this country uh, and, the, and the people who fought and died to give us that freedom, that that's what the national anthem's about. But the national anthem doesn't actually have anything to do with the game. It's completely disconnected with the game. It's just about honoring uh, uh, just the fact that we're Americans and that we have this beautiful freedom, but it's disconnected from the game. It has nothing to do with the game. And I, I just was thinking about through that this week, and I think it's the same way that we, we handle prayer with God. That it's just a, something that we do, something that we come before the Father and we kind of just interact with him and we're like, thank you for life and thank you for this day and bless us and, and don't let us die today and, and just, just let the food be good. And, and every, but then it's completely disconnected from the game of life. 
that it becomes an, 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 a thing where we just kind of go through the religious motions of kind of honoring God because we just kind of honor God and then we go about, but it has nothing to do with life. Listen, the Bible exists to put us into the presence of Jesus Christ. Prayer exists to put us in the presence of Jesus Christ, uh, that these things are there for us to interact with and engage with the presence of Jesus Christ. That, that many of us, we don't, we don't walk in that freedom because we've become, religions taught us to be obsessed with the idea of Jesus, but we've never actually come to the person of Jesus and engage him as a living, active king. We never uh, enthrall ourselves and, and chase him and seek him as the Bible so distinctly teaches us. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open for you. That, that this book should drive you into the presence of Jesus Christ. That you should become utterly addicted to the person of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the power of Jesus, King Jesus. That this is what we need. So again, I'll come back and I'll ask you the same question that Jesus asked uh, this man. Do you want to be made whole? And if you want to be made whole, and if you want things to change in your life, then you gotta quit coming to church just to come to church. You gotta start coming to church to seek the presence of Jesus Christ. You gotta stop just reading the Bible to read the Bible. You gotta read the Bible to drive your heart and your mind into the powerful presence of Jesus Christ. You gotta quit treating prayer uh, like an honorary song before a basketball game, and you gotta walk into a room and close the door behind you and turn the lights off and not leave that room until you enter into the genuine, authentic presence of Jesus Christ. Like Jacob, we have to learn how to wrestle with God and not let him go until we find him. We gotta learn how to hunger after him and hunger more for the presence of Jesus than anything else on this earth and in this planet. The reason why the church of America is at its weakest state, in my opinion, based off reality, is that we have become obsessed with the idea of Jesus and we have forgotten that he is a living, active king and we no longer seek the presence of Jesus. You, you go through your life without ever truly coming to the king. Don't you understand that this is one of the greatest things that Jesus gives us on the cross of Jesus Christ, that we're not just forgiven of our sins and not just have the ability to be set free from our sins, but one of the most unique and powerful things that God God did to prove something to us, to show us something, is that the very second that Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, and he closed his eyes, and he died for your sins. The, the veil in the temple was torn, setting free the presence of God in our lives. Jesus said to the disciples, the Holy Spirit is with you, but will soon be in you. That Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus Christ is a very real, living, Thing. And what Jesus wants us to do is to seek him until we find him. This is why from Genesis to Revelations, when they were in need of something, he said, humble yourselves, seek my face and pray and you'll find me. He said, get together and fast and, and don't eat until you get a hold of me. Empty yourself out of this world and of food and of yourself and I will then fill you up. Ask, seek, knock. Everything that we see in the Bible, Jesus is saying, I 
I am telling you, it is possible for you to get into the presence of a living God. Won't you do it? Why won't you chase him? So now let me get maybe just a little judgmental then, uh, just for a second, because sometimes just like Paul says that we should never judge the world, but every now and then we should bring some judgment on the church. So if we do want to be made whole and we do believe that an encounter and interaction with Jesus is the thing and the only thing that we need, why don't we seek his face until we find him? Why don't we fast until we get a hold of him? Why don't we wake up every day and change our life around until we have time to seek him in prayer? You know why? It's easier to sit near the pool in hopes that one day something will just change rather than seeking Jesus. For some people, it's just a lack of desperation. You're not really tired of walking with that infirmity enough to truly seek God until it changes. For some of you, and this is, this is how I wanna end this message, for some of you, you do what my wife does when my mother-in-law comes over. She gets the house spotless. It's just that thing. It's, I can always tell somebody's coming over. When I, when I walk through the house, it's always clean, but when I walk through the house and I could lick the floor, somebody's coming over. And some of you feel like, listen, I, I've gotta, I gotta clean a little bit of my heart up before I start seeking Jesus. I gotta clean a little bit of this sin up before I start seeking Jesus. I'm in the middle of an affair right now and I gotta end this affair before I can really start to seek Jesus. I do have an addiction to pornography and I gotta kinda get past that before I start to seek Jesus. I, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of those things you talked about and I feel like I gotta clean house a little bit before I seek Jesus. And what I'm here to tell you is, you'll never be able to clean your house without Jesus. Right now in your sin, and I, I know this is so, this sounds so different backwards, but I'm telling you, there should be nothing greater in this life to drive you to Jesus than active sin in your life. Because if you are a believer, then you know Jesus is the only one that can remove it. Jesus died on a cross for you in your sins so that he could come help you clean it. Don't let shame cut you off from the presence of Christ. He died and he left shame in the grave with your sin. Leave it there. And for some of you, this is the first time you really understood that I can actually get to the presence of Jesus. And so I want you to change the way you think about church. I want you to change the way you think about worship at church. I want you to change the way you think about listening to a message. I want you to change the way you think about house church. I want you to change the way you think about the Bible. I want you to change the way you think about prayer. I want you to change the way you think about some of these spiritual things. All of these things are about interacting with and encountering Jesus Christ, the person, the presence. He is a living and active king and we need him more than we need anything else. We have to become a church that continually and always seeks Jesus the person, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the King. Because it is only Jesus that can change a heart. It is only Jesus that can set us free. It is only Jesus that can change a church. It's only Jesus that can change an atmosphere. It's only Jesus that can change a country. It's only Jesus that can change a world. It's Jesus and nothing else. We've got to get to the feet of Jesus Christ. We have to be a people who seek Jesus.
Take all of our sins to Jesus, all of our problems in our marriage to Jesus. Take all of our addictions to Jesus, all of our infirmities to Jesus. We gotta get desperate for him. We need a touch of Jesus Christ. So I challenge you, I encourage you, I beg you, starting right now in this moment, seek Jesus until you find him. Seek Jesus until you find him.